0: what a privilege and gift it is to have a chance to be part of uh, your worship here today. This church has been one that I visited periodically, but I've never been regularly a part of the congregation, and I'm delighted to be here. Many, many people that I know over the years have been significantly changed by the experience of God's grace through you. So thank you for the privilege of being here and for the welcome you've given me. When I come as a guest into a congregation like this, though, I'm very aware that I come as somebody who doesn't know you and you don't know me from the Man on the Moon. So I'm very aware that I don't know what your concerns may be, what it is that brings you here this morning, why it is that you've come, what it is that you're looking for. And it reminds me of this moment when I was early in the ministry that I had in Berkeley. I went into an art store looking for something that admittedly was a little unusual. And I walked up to the clerk and I said, you know, I'm looking for something I'm not sure exists. And without batting an eye, the clerk said, aren't we all? It was just the first of many Berkeley moments like that um, over the time. And it did remind me in that way that that in a way it's true, of course, we're all looking for something that we're not really sure exists. And I don't know what it is that you're looking for or whether or not you believe it does or doesn't exist. But the God that I believe is here this morning is a God who exists and who loves you, who sees you and and knows your name, who understands the joys and the burdens of your life and of the world that you're a part of. it's really in the name of that God that we gather in worship. And it's that God that I want us to think about this morning. Because that God, frankly, is not like you or me. The God that we are here to worship isn't really very much like us. Or maybe in biblical terms, it's more like the other way around. We're not very much like that God. We're meant to be. That's what worship is actually meant to be. Worship is meant to be an experience, an exercise of becoming people who reflect the character of the God that we worship. That's what it actually means to worship God, to reflect God's glory. But we don't reflect God's glory by just coming into a beautiful room or singing or saying the word glory. God isn't glorified by saying glory to God. What brings God glory is when we mirror back to God the reality of who God is, God's character and will and love and mercy and justice. It's by how we live that we actually reflect the glory of God. But instead, we've domesticated God and we've domesticated worship to be this really small, tiny, little piece of our lives. Maybe we get, quote, to worship in a room, something like this, as frequently as we can, we say. And it's all sort of boxed in in this small little thing that we call a worship service. But in the language of the Bible, worship is one of the biggest, most encompassing words imaginable. It's what Jesus says the very rocks themselves will do. It's the purpose for which the whole created order exists to reflect back to God the full, mind-boggling, overwhelming glory, goodness, mercy of God. If Israel was confident of anything, it believed it had its worship right. After all, they were the people to whom God had revealed his name. It was to them that God had sent prophets. It was to them that God had given the law. It was to them that the temple had been built. It was in their midst that God had been present in the tabernacle. And it was in the temple that God was to be worshipped. And it was such a holy sense of presence that only the high priest could go into this holy of holies one time a year. And everyone in Israel knew that was where God lived. Israel believed it had its worship right. That's what makes it so astonishing, that when we come to the text that I'm going to read in a moment, the crisis in Israel's life is a crisis of worship. God, it turns out, measures our worship. But God does not measure our worship by our liturgy or our aesthetics, by our style of music, by the place and context in which we gather for a service. That's the domesticated vision that is actually Israel's brokenness. Because they've taken this big reality called worship and tried to squeeze it into this small space called a worship service. And in doing so, have reduced God and God's heart for the world to something so much less than it's ever intended to be. This causes such a crisis that it's God's word of judgment that comes through the prophet Isaiah to speak these words to Israel. Isaiah chapter 58. The prophet writes, Shout out! Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast they say but you do not see. Why do we humble ourselves but you do not notice. Look. You serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look you fast only to quarrel and to fight with us and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush, and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked to cover them, not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. The crisis in Israel's life is that their worship had really become about themselves. The prophet says, you practice what we might call as if worship. You practice as if, he says, you are people who actually practice righteousness. As if you are people who are going to actually go out and live the righteousness that you say matters to you when you come into my temple. It's a pretense. And it's not just that it's disconnected. It's not even about the same thing. Fundamentally, he says, your worship is really about you. You do what you can simply to get your own ends. You're not seeking me. You're seeking what I can give you. You're not seeking to honor me. You're seeking what you need and want. And the reality of that is you may have needs and wants, but to call that worship is to actually fail to understand what it is that God is saying is meant to change us from the inside out so that our worship becomes a reflection of the heart of the God that we worship. And if it doesn't do that, if it doesn't start showing up in lives that don't look like they would look otherwise, if it doesn't show up in unexpected acts of love and mercy and justice, if it, if it doesn't show up, in this case, for the most vulnerable, then it doesn't show up as God's peculiar, unexpected love. It shows up that it just really looks a lot like you. It doesn't really look like the God that you worship. And in that sense, it doesn't actually turn out to bring God glory it just reflects your own self-interest. Indicted. That was true for Israel, and it's true for us, it's true for me. How often are our exercises of worship principally really about seeking our own ends? And yet what Clearly, the prophet Isaiah is trying to say is that God wants to do something new and that to do that, we live in a culture that steeps us in the capacity, the desire to pursue ourselves. There was a time not long ago when I was speaking at an event which had such bright lights on the stage that I could literally see no one that I was talking to. But what I could see was first a video monitor over here that had a very large image of me. And then over here on the other side, there was another video monitor with another large image of me. And then, of course, there was me. There was me and me and me. I thought this is sort of the postmodern trinity. There's, this is the world that I've always been looking for. This is the world that I was made for, where everyone and everything is all about me all the time. Everyone pays rapt attention to what I say. Everyone's completely absorbed in what I'm interested in. It's all about me all the time. That's the culture that you and I live in. And it's the culture from which our worship both here and the worship that we live in the world is meant to be a daily exercise of turning us from the idolatry of self outward to a God who sees and loves us and the world and calls us to be people who live distinctively because we seek a God who loves us and loves us enough to say, and I want you to share my heart of love for a broken and needy world. A few years ago, when economic times were a bit better, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the growing popularity of private jet travel. Everyone knows that in a post 9-11 world that commercial air travel has become a pain. And this article focused in on this one particular gazillionaire who had invented something which gave him the opportunity to be able to fly privately. He said the turning point in his life happened when he was flying from one coast to the other. He said, I was in, of course, in first class and there was a woman, he said, if you can believe it, who had a baby in business of all things. And he said, that baby cried from one side of the country all the way to the other side of the country. And he said, well, that settled it. I'm never flying commercial again. And then he gave us his mission statement, and this is what he said, because I realized that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Okay, let's just kind of do a kind of meditation on that for just a moment. Okay, so mission statement goes like this, I've decided that the really important thing in my life is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Now in my wonderful pastoral attitude, I read this and thought how disgusting, until I, a nanosecond or two later, began to realize that this was echoing in my head with an uncomfortable familiarity. An identity that I have to say if I'm going to tell you the truth about myself that, that that's true of my life I do all kinds of things on ordinary days to exclude from my life people who might bum me out Facebook understood this from the very beginning it's, it's exactly, it's built in to this sense of I, I totally want to exclude from my life people that I want to exclude, I, I have no problem going no thank you I and made to do that. And we have to admit that where we live is often a story of deciding to exclude from our life people that might bum us out. I live here, not there, because I don't want those people to be here. So I will live here because not those people bum me out, and therefore I'd rather not be bummed out. I join clubs based on people that might not bum me out. I shop in places that are going to make me feel more comfortable because I won't be bummed out by those who bum me out. And I can organize what's called my personal sociology, especially if I am a privileged person in the world. I can do all kinds of things to really quite subtly, invisibly exclude from my life people that just might be those that bum me out. And I feel just fine about that. And the prophet Isaiah says, exactly so because you really left your own devices, you really worship yourself. And the purpose of what God is doing in Israel's life, the purpose of what God is now doing in Jesus Christ is to deliver us from the small prison of our own selves. I live in a little jail, bounded north, south, east and west by Mark by the things that Mark wants, the things that Mark sees, the people that Mark cares about. And what a life of worship calls us to is to actually get set free from that. Israel is meant to demonstrate a freedom of an unexpected love beyond their self-interest. And here, the benchmark of worship is no longer that small prison of self-interest. It's actually this unexpected evidence of a love that is the love in the heart and mind of the God revealed to Israel. A God who, whose heart bends with special compassion to the most vulnerable. To the people who are not going to give you anything in return. To the people who are not part of your feeding system that build your career or your portfolio or your self-interest or your happiness. And you do this not as an act of some sort of false heroism, But because you identify in your worship with a God whose love is poured out in unexpected ways to a world in profound need. And we, the people of God who dare to name that God and say that we worship that God, are meant to reflect that love into a world where there's desperate need for exactly that sort of evidence. So do we get that worship is measured? And it's really not measured by what happens in this room. Our worship, Isaiah says, is really measured by how we live in the world, by who we exclude and by what story that tells about what really matters most to us, about where we are in the process of growing hearts that look more and more like the heart of the God that we worship and less and less simply like my own private personal sociology. Are we prepared to engage with that kind of a God who now, even more intensively in Jesus Christ, has come to demonstrate the significance of just how costly this can be? That in fact it really will be, as Jesus said, a matter of taking up a cross, not because that's sort of, again, an act of heroism, but because actually the process of worshiping God is going to be a process of laying down our lives. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 that we should have this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a prerogative to just hold on to. But instead he laid it down and became a a human being. And having suffered, he gave his life for the world. And then he says to us, and you, you who follow me, I call you to do the same. And if you don't find that natural, which by the way, you won't, I want to give you a new heart. I want to give you a new mind. I want to give you a new sense of what it means to be alive in the world that's not defined by you, that's not defined by your universe, that actually is being changed by the heart and mind of a God who is going to make all things new. But this will be challenging. One day in my office in Berkeley when I was still the pastor at First Press, A knock came to the door, and I went to the door, and there was this man there who quickly introduced himself, and he said he was this very successful, very powerful person who really didn't have time for this conversation, but he'd come by anyway, and he just wondered if he could have just a few minutes of my time. I said, well, what's up? He said, well, my wife has been coming to this church, and she's talking about Jesus at dinner. I don't really know anything about Jesus, so I just thought I could come by for some bullet points about Jesus. He said, really, I don't have a lot of time. I'm just so successful and so powerful and have so many important things to be about that I just really don't have this time for this conversation. So just a few bullet points. I'll get out of your hair. I'll be on my way. I said, wow, that is really asking a lot. The first thing is I'm not really so much a bullet points guy. That's kind of not really my style. And the second thing is if I gave you bullet points and if you really understood the bullet points, It would have a way potentially of seeping into every part of your life and you'd have to rethink your personal power and your success and your career and your money and and your influence and your family and your children and all of your priorities and all the things that you do with your time. And I'm not really sure that you're up for that. I am not up for that, he said. I just wanted some bullet points about Jesus. I said, oh, I know that. Lots of people want bullet points about lots of things, including Jesus. But the thing is that Jesus bullet points will sort of mess with your life. And I'm not entirely sure that I want to be responsible for undoing your life. (laughs) I said, you know, you seem like a, a happy, contented person in your own world. He goes, I am. I said, right. So why don't you just change the subject at dinner? I think that might be better. Just talk about something else. Just, you know, have your own little bullet point of alternative subjects at dinner and you could sort of lay it on the table and have that be the topic instead of Jesus. That might be better. No, he said, no, no, that won't work. How about if I came back for an hour? He said, I said, that's just kind of like a a large overgrown bullet point, really. I'm not sure that that would (laughs) help. What about two hours? No, not really. And then finally he said, well, what if I came back for a whole morning? I don't give anybody a whole morning. He said, (laughs) yeah, I kind of had that impression that was probably true. So he came for a morning. As far as I could see, nothing happened at all. There was no spiritual hunger in him. He was quite content in his personal universe. And he came back for another morning. Same contented space, another morning, same space. It didn't seem to me that this kind of routine was really going anywhere, actually. He told me several times not to expect him in church, so I certainly didn't, but it meant that I was shocked the Sunday when suddenly there he was in the third pew. I thought, wow, dinner must have gotten really awkward by this stage. <laughs> so there he was, and I had, was looking forward to the opportunity to talk with him after the service, and he came up to me, and he began to tell me something, and then he just sort of collapsed in my arms in tears. I thought, oh my gosh, this is really serious. What's happened? I thought something maybe was up with their kids. I didn't know what was happening, and he eventually said, well, I don't even know what happened, but... But I was in this other town and I, you know, I like buildings and I had that interest in this one building. It happened to be a church, but you know that I don't like churches. So, but I went into this building and I just sat in this building just by myself and I don't know what happened, but I guess, I think, and then he just burst into tears again. I think that God just showed up. I said, oh, this is going to get messy. <laughs> Maybe that is actually what happened. And if it is? Remember, I said it was going to change everything. Yeah, he said, I remember that. That's why I'm crying. (laughs) Yeah, I can understand that, I said. Now, five or six years later, he's the same person in his office and family and community. But by God's grace, he is increasingly a new and different person. And it has been seeping its way into every part of his life and he does see his work and his money and his power and his time and his family and the world in a different way. It's a trajectory that's called being a living disciple. You as a church are committed to becoming serious disciples. The world in this part of the world and around the globe, needs you and every congregation to be a, an embodiment, not of as-if worship, but of real worship. A worship that doesn't look like you. L.A. doesn't need you to be you. L.A. needs you to be Christ's ambassadors in the world, in the way that you distinctly can be. But not you seeking your own ends, but you giving yourselves to the interests of others out of a heart that's reshaped by the reality of a God who loves you and wants to love the world through you. This emphasis, this Outreach Sunday and now in the years to come, about adoptive children and children in foster care, is to give you an opportunity, among the other things that you're doing, to now think really in a very riveted way, are we prepared to give ourselves, not in a way that's simply about our interests, but about the genuine interests and needs of these children because the God that we worship says, I see those children. I was so struck this morning in the baptism as, as I was watching these parents hold their babies. I remember when we were holding our babies. The amazing attentiveness, s- seeing them. They're not just any child, they're, they're this child, they're this particular child. The children that are in the foster care system probably have no one that looks on them for a moment like that. No wonder they're children in such need. That no one has them so much in their sights that there isn't a chance that they're going to be missed. That they're going to fall through some sort of cracks. They're going to be seen because... Because that's what it means to be involved in response to children who, because of no fault of their own, because of no decisions on their own, because of the decisions of adults and people in circumstances of often great need and brokenness and chaos of various kinds, have brought them into a circumstance where now they are simply vulnerably themselves in the world, wondering, is there anyone that's paying attention? And the God of the Bible Here's the cries of people who are asking, is there a God in the universe that pays attention? And God's response to that is, yes, I'm here and I'm going to send my people to pay attention in my name. And therefore you need to attend to the things that I attend to. And I see those children, the 35,000 children in LA County that are in some way or another in the foster care system. The 1,400 children that are actually available right now today. To possibly be invited into a home. That would be an extraordinary act of love. But it doesn't come from your heart first. It comes from the heart of a God who will never blink in relationship to those children. Who sees them even today, right at this moment. And you are invited to think, to pray, to ponder. Could my worship lead me? to a new way of understanding family? Could it enlarge my vision and priorities that are about more than a family that fits my sociology? Could I dare to believe that the God I worship is a God who's making a new family? A family of people of every tribe and tongue and nation, a family of people that are that are broken in need of being found and loved and forgiven and, and rescued. And all of that is, is what you're being invited to consider and Ponder and pray about, and perhaps for some of you to actually do, to actually enact. You see, the language, interestingly, of worship is not, do you believe in a God of compassion and justice? It's, will you act justly and compassionately in the world? That's the language to which Isaiah turns. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. These are not passive words about, let me think about the oppressed. Let me think about... This is what Presbyterians do. We're really good. We we think if we say something or have thought something, we've done something. It's that kind of Presbyterian disease. It was also a disease for Israel. Here, the prophet says, no, what you're called to is actually to do something. What are you called to do? You're all called, if you are disciples of Christ, to to do something that demonstrates your worship in the world. Will you allow that to be transformative? That's what's the trajectory of your life. That's where all this is meant to be headed. L.A. desperately needs the Bel Air Presbyterian Church to be a community of authentic worshipers who are about the God that they worship. Not just about an affirmation of their own sociology, their own identity, their own personal inner need for God's love and grace and mercy. As important as all that is, God has so much more to give than just that. God wants to lavish a grace, an unexpected grace, through you on the world. There was a woman... I met a number of years ago who had had a very challenging life and circumstances had led her to a particular moment where she was in a kind of encounter group where there was an exercise that involved, it was called a lifeboat exercise and everyone was given five Popsicle sticks. You stood in a circle of 25 people and you were to distribute your Popsicle sticks around the circle as each person went to everyone else around the circle and said, either I choose you and you gave them a popsicle stick, or you looked them in the face and you said, I do not choose you. This was supposed to somehow instill something. (laughs) What it did in this woman's life at the end of the exercise was to give her a crushing blow of empty hands where no one had said to her, I choose you. This f- brought her into a clinical depression, a season of extraordinary darkness of crush a crushing sense that the legacy that she brought into that moment from her past combined with these events just ended up being combustible and incredibly destructive. There was a period of time a couple of years after she had begun to reemerge from this really really dark time she came onto our church staff she was just working a few hours a day just to be in social relationship again she had become so isolated she eventually told the story to a small group that we were having as a staff and in that group she told the story that people that were in the group were incredibly responsive and supportive of, to her and the circle of prayer that surrounded her was very meaningful We went on our way in the course of the morning, we went to had our little staff lunch, and we happened to be, as a little group, walking back from our lunch together to her office, and we were standing outside her office. And unbeknownst to us, something had happened while we were gone, And, and as she opened up her office door, suddenly she stood at the door and we were surrounding her when she opened the door to see that there were now thousands of popsicle sticks that had been dumped all over her office. It was one of the most breathtaking experiences of God's grace that I think I've ever actually seen physically. It was like somebody got it and heard it at a depth that that no word could actually convey. They had done something to symbolize in this case that her life was not only chosen, but it was chosen lavishly and generously, extravagantly because that's the character of the love of God that that we know. And the story of her life has now been a story of of coming to a place now of giving her life away to others in the most generous-hearted way because she's experienced the lavish love of God. It was for her, but it was for more than her. The call to adopt children, to become a foster care home, is a call to practice giving away lots and lots of popsicle sticks. In a lavish, unexpected act of generous grace, of just seeing and really hearing people's stories who believe that nobody's seen them and nobody's chosen them until you do. And in the context of that, their lives can be forever changed. I think of a guy who I met who had come to the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. He had really dramatic flames and tattoos that came up to his high cheekbones and he was a dramatic, wonderful guy, and I I looked forward to the opportunity to chat with him. One day we ran into each other early one morning. He was explaining his story. He said, I've been a traveling musician. I've lived really all over the, the world traveling, but now I'm back in school. I'm trying to figure out who I am and what my life is about. I had really put questions of, of meaning to the side. I'm now back thinking about it again. It's caused me to start coming to church. I go to some churches I hear about Jesus but I hear very little about the world. I go to other churches and I hear a lot about the world but very little about Jesus. I, I know that, that I at your church I hear a lot about Jesus and a lot about the world. But what I want to know is this, he said, basically people like me were a dime a dozen. I could, within a quarter mile of here, find 150 people that are basically like me. I don't need more people like me in my life. What I am wondering, he said, is if I hang out at your church, will I meet people that are actually like Jesus? Well, now there's a question. That's what LA needs you to be. People that are becoming like Jesus. None of us have arrived. But it's meant to be an enacted reality. Early one morning, I was getting on an airplane to fly from the Bay Area down to Los Angeles, and it was a six o'clock flight, usually a flight just with business travelers. It's uncommon to see an 85-year-old lady on the aisle that I was happening to get into, and I was working on a book called The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor. It had been a really, really hard project for a bunch of reasons, and I had the manuscript in my hands. And as I reached across her, I put my case down and I put my, the manuscript on top of it and my case above, and then I slid into the aisle. And, and I could, as I began to put on my seatbelt and adjust to the plane for a moment, I could just feel by the way she was sort of moving in the seat that she was going to be a, a talker. <laughs> and I, I really wasn't feeling very much like I wanted to talk right at that moment. And, and so I sat there just hoping that maybe I was wrong, and she kept wringing her hands and she said, You know... You know, I just would like to ask you some questions about those papers. These papers, I said. Yeah, yeah, those those papers. She said, Are are those your papers? Um Yeah, yeah, they're they're my papers. Does that mean that you you wrote those papers? Um Yeah. Yeah, that's what it means. She said, um She said, What are those papers about? I thought, well, they're about what to do with annoying people at 6 o'clock in the morning who, who just interrupt your life when all you want to do is sort of sit in your little cocoon on the plane. But I said, well, they're, they're just papers about how we treat each other. She wasn't done, though. I could tell. A, she kind of rubbed her hands a little bit more. And she said, now, I just have one other question I'm going to ask. Is Is that a work of fiction? I said, no, no, no. And then I thought, uh... Maybe actually, maybe, maybe that's actually why it's been so hard to write this book. Is talk of loving your neighbor just a work of fiction that Christian people do because that's what we do? Do we talk about the fact that we know a God of love and justice and mercy because that's just kind of what we do? Or, or do we actually do these things because in fact it's not a work of fiction? Well, the only way that the world will know that this book and its story is not a work of fiction is if we actually love in a way that this God has shown us to do. So how's your worship? Lord, by your grace, this congregation, this wonderful congregation, has been given so much And it is a gift of grace. And you are changing people's lives here. And you're doing this not as ends in themselves, but for the sake of what you want to do through people, to bear witness to vulnerable children, to children who have never really yet fully registered that there's someone that truly sees them and loves them and will serve them. Lord, in this venture related to foster care and adoption, may you be doing a great work that children's lives will be changed through the lives of families in this congregation, perhaps people here even right now, who might decide that their worship is going to show up differently in the world because they're willing to make a risky decision to live their worship. And all of us, Lord, are called to make our own responses and together to make responses that are going to call us into places of unexpected love that does not have us at the center or the byproduct or the derivative beneficiary. We are called to love because it is in your very being to love. And you ask us to demonstrate to the world that that's no work of fiction. It's the real story To the glory of your great name we pray. Amen.